Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Steven here, also known as Stockhuyi on TikTok. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the podcast, my hoes. As you guys have probably noticed, we have ad now at the beginning of videos, which we need in order to grow the podcast. But if you want to add free listening experience, come join us over on Patreon. We'll put the link in the description of the podcast. Um, by joining Patreon, you get access to the podcast early. You get an ad-free listening experience. And at certain tiers, you can also request TikTok videos. So come on, check us out. And now on to today's topic. Now, I, I know last time, Gabby, we, we talked about military animals, specifically dogs, and you cried. Uh, but also there was cats. Yay. And Yeah, and... I know that you've never been as much of a cat person, uh, but imagine, if you will, if you had a cat, but that cat was also on cocaine. And that is basically what you would get uh, if you had today's animal. Like, what is the, the coverage of today? Now, I would just like to point out that it's not that I'm not a cat person. Cats are not Gabby people. Cats aren't like any people for anything. Like, I know it's going to piss off a lot of cat people to say this in the first place, but you know what cats are like. Cats have they, boundaries. Yeah. I'm not disrespecting that. It's just they don't like me. They can be very aloof. They do what it is they want. They're not dogs, right? They don't go to please you. And they've basically been that way throughout all of history. Is so, this a cat episode? No, it's not a cat episode. It's a ferret episode. Like, as I said, last time we talked about military animals, specifically cats and dogs and a cat that had served in a ship on Sinkable Sand. But cats were not the only creatures that were kept on ships. So when you look at, say, ships animals historically, there were typically three were the most common. You'd see cats, for obvious reason for rodents. But before cats, people used dogs because dogs not only were good companions, but they theoretically would be able to chase vermin around the ship and, you know, keep them off, serve as a guard, that kind of thing. And of course, some people kept birds because, well, birds are very easy to take care of on the open sea for here because you know if they're not leaving the ship they're going to stay with you but really with all those things the only one that was truly useful in that sense was a cat but cats provided their own kind of problems because they they could still be larger right and ships have a lot of nooks and crannies and different things that you couldn't really fit into simultaneously cats would chase a rodent when they wanted to like, a cat is not just going to automatically go after something. They would really only go after something if they felt like it. They're, like, the world's laziest predator because they can go from, like, I'm going to play with and mess with my food to you will not literally be able to make me do anything whatsoever. And that's where ferrets were introduced because a ferret, as I said, is like a cat on cocaine. Like, they will hunt and chase down any rodent or really any kind of moving thing just for the hell of it. And their history is wild, but I'm going to have to break this down. Because I, I know, for those of you who are listening, especially when I go on these long rants, uh, you were around for when I went on a 45-minute rant on potatoes. Well, guess what? <laughs> Round two, and it's ferrets. So let's go back to the beginning. 
The domestic ferret, which the scientific name for it is Mustella putorius furo, which we're going to get into that because that's a whole other thing, is thought to have been domesticated from either the Western or the Eastern European polecat. And if you're wondering, like, what a polecat is, a polecat is a member of the weasel family, which is distinguished by a... Man, how am I going to describe this? A remarkably unpleasant smelling secretion that it is capable of producing for the purpose of marking their territory. So polecats emit the secretion from their from their butt, so like from their anal glands, and they rub it against trees, rocks, all, basically anything that they have in their area to mark their territory. And sometimes they would actively spray this secretion, which has a really sharp, fetid odor. Like, it's, it's bad. So in addition to true polecats, such as the European polecat and the steppe polecat, skunks and civets, or sorry, civets, are also sometimes referred to as polecats. Like, they're all part of the same family. So, yeah, ferrets and skunks are related, but it's a whole other kind of thing. And it's primarily because they produce strong bodily secretions. Now, interestingly enough, and this is a historical tidbit on this, in England, back like during the Victorian era and before, uh, homeless people, like vagabonds, were sometimes referred to as polecats, which is a very insulting way of describing a vagabond as being some dirty, smelly person. I've heard that before, actually. What you have? Okay, I mean, I say that's in England. You came from a British, uh, like, education system down there in Trinidad. Was that is that used down there? I don't think it's used down there. I just read a book. Oh, well, okay. Well, that makes sense for it here. So the name, and this is where we're going to get into that, the name Mustella is the Latin derivative, uh, der- man, I am screwing that up when speaking. The name Mustella comes from the Latin word mus, which means like, or mus, 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 which is like mouse. We're going to have a lot of alliteration when I'm saying these things. And animals within the Mustella genus include weasels and other things that you would term as mouse or rodent catchers. Putorius is the Latin word from puter, which means a stench, referring to, you know, that musky odor that ferrets have. And furo comes from the Latin furonym, meaning thief. So the literal translation for this, the scientific name, Mustella putorius furo, means smelly thief weasel. Or smelly, like, mouse thief. I love that. And that... (laughs) That is the literal name for it. And it goes back, and again, I'm going on a tangent for this, I know. But if you think about all the Latin names that sound so incredibly fancy, it just, when you read stuff like this, you come to realize that biologists, geographers, etc., but especially biologists and doctors back in the 19th century, like, there is a reason why they they used cocaine medicinally as a stimulant. And all I can think of when I see this is a modern version of shitposting where it's a bunch of biologists who have, you know, been treating themselves with cocaine. They're like, all right, we got a weasel. What are we going to name it? Hmm, and they're examining it from every angle and they just look and go, oh, by Jove, that stinks. <laughs> Jeffrey, what's the Latin word for smelly? Putorius. And this thing loves to chase mice. It's a smelly thief weasel. And that, genuinely, I think that that is how they came down with stuff like that. 
So, okay, this is the naming sense, but ferrets have a really long history. They didn't just get famous in like the 18th or the 19th century. Like they have a domestication history going back all the way into potentially Egyptian times, but we really know of them starting around the 5th and 4th century BC when you had the uh, the man Aristophanes who wrote it down, at least for the first records from what we can see. And I know you're looking at me right now with a blank face. You don't know who Aristophanes is. So that's fine. I'm going to educate you because I figured that was going to be something that was eventually going to come up in here. So Aristophanes was a famous writer of old comedy plays in ancient Greece. And his surviving works are actually the only examples that we have of that style. So he used this like really rough but innovative comedy style that it hid these really sophisticated digs at political elites. And he also dealt with things like social issues, cultural change, that sort of thing. Even the role of women in society. So his plays are not only a record of Greek theater, but simultaneously they provided insight towards Greek society itself. Like he covered basically everything, uh, like from the practicalities of, you know, jury duty all the way to religious rituals. And my personal favorite, and again, this is a little tidbit for him here, and I highly recommend for those of you listening that you look this thing up. My personal favorite play is one that I had to read back in college, and it's called Lysistrata, which was written in 411 BC, where women all across Greece go on a sex strike in order to force their men to stop fighting each other and make peace. That was, that was the literal subject of this play. Now, further mention of the weasel, or the ferret, was made by the philosopher Aristotle around 350 BC, who stated that the animal could become mild, but tame. We say believed to be a ferret because both in this case of Aristotle and also Aristophanes, they don't specifically name the ferret, just that there's a weasel or a weasel-like creature that is present. So if we want to be more exact on when it comes to a ferret's domestication, we would need to rely on Strabo, who that he was from uh, around 600, uh, 600, 63 BC going to 24 AD. And he talked about ferrets in Libya that were specifically bred for the purpose of hunting. They would be placed in a muzzle and they would be sent down into rabbit holes to hunt rabbits. And it, it, this whole thing was insane. And I know you're looking at me again here and you're wondering who the hell was Strabo. And I know I'm going off on another tangent, but there's context here. It has to be explained. I'm sorry. Strabo was a Greek, like, uh, he was both a historian as well as a geographer. And his work, Geography, is actually the only existing work that covers the entire range of peoples and countries known to both the Greeks and the Romans during the time of Augustus. So Augustus, he ruled from, you know, 27 BC to 14 AD there in Rome. And as it was common at the time for people of Strabo's class, he did a lot of traveling specifically for his scholarly purposes. So he went all the way down far south to like Egypt, Ethiopia, Kush, which is like modern Sudan. And then that was in the south. And he went all the way over to, you know, Tuscany, like for the heart of Rome that would be in the quote unquote west. And he would go all the way into the east and Greece and going into the Middle East. So he was very well traveled and he documented everything and surveyed all these different things about different peoples and creatures so i know you're looking at me confused he sounds cool i would love to do what he did given the opportunity so why am i talking about this guy 
Well, somewhere between 63 BC and 24 AD, Strabo writes about a plague of rabbits in the Belleric Islands, which that's those little islands that are off the coast of Spain in the Mediterranean. And they were causing a famine because if you know rabbits, they eat everything. Like they are generally regarded as a pest. So he describes a Libyan animal that was bred specifically for the purpose of hunting. They would put a muzzle on it because they were pretty much wild. They weren't really domesticated. It's like they were half domesticated. And you would put them into the rabbit holes. The animal, whose behavior really sounds like a ferret, would use its claws or just its mere scent to like drag out rabbits out of their holes. And as the rabbits would bolt out of their holes, there would be people waiting around it with nets and dogs. So when the rabbits came bolting out, they'd catch the rabbit, kill it. And that's what they would do. And this practice is something that is remarkably similar or rather the, the same pretty much to what we would see in Europe for a type of hunting sport called ferreting. And that is actually still used in Libya today, which I saw your eyes. Ferreting. Yeah, that ferreting is a thing. So if you look at the modern use of ferreting, then it simply means something like, okay, if you were going to ferret the truth out of someone, like what, what does that mean? You get it out of them. You force it out of them. You wiggle it out of them. Correct. Basically, yeah. It, to, like to ferret means to uncover, to bring to light by searching. Like, you know, a detective that is ferreting out the truth. And this comes from, like you said, it to drive out from a hiding place, to expel it. And you can see how this would like come to be, considering that the original meaning was literally taking an angry weasel and throwing it into a hole so it would drive out whatever was inside. I feel like I could do this job. <laughs> you probably could. And it was like a really big pastime. Like Not only a pastime, but it was a big job for some people. But I'm going to get into that later. So as time passed, they were mentioned more and more as people realized like, hey, you can use these things not only for just hunting, but also in households. Like you could say that ferrets in ancient times, they were the working animals that were made for the lower to middle class in order to keep pests away. The ferret's close cousin, the mongoose, was actually used more often for rodent and snake control. And it is even to this day continued to use in this manner in areas where it's indigenous. The household aspect really, that starts to come to be from the writings of Isidore of, of Seville. And this guy was born in Cartagena, Spain, and he was a writer of a huge number of books, as well as he was the Bishop of Seville. So he was actually a pretty big deal. One of his most well-known books was something called Etymology, or Origins, as it is sometimes called, which was an encyclopedia of all knowledge. And I love this. I love this term that they use of encyclopedia of all knowledge. AKA you. Okay, yeah, no, but that's not why. It's because the knowledge that they have is more like um, accepted wisdom versus factual knowledge. Like this kind of crap that they have in here would never pass in any kind of textbook today. And I'm going to explain why. Hey everyone, Sakuya here. And before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. 
And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So, for example, Book 12 of Beasts and Men is based on the writings of Pliny and Selenius. And the viewpoint of scholars that he's talking about is that weasels would wander around the house and he writes in there, and I'm going to read this verbatim. <clears throat> Mustella, the weasel, is so-called being, as it were, moose longus, the long mouse, for tellum, the, the ending part of that word, tellum, meaning missile. So literally, it's a long mouse missile. Is like If you want to break down the Latin even more, it's a long mouse <laughs> that is shaped like a missile. He's not Like wrong. an arrow. This is all accurate information. This creature, somewhat wily in its disposition, moves and changes its nest in the house when it is nursing its young. It chases snakes and mice, and there are two sorts of weasels, for one is a creature of woods and is of a different size, which the Greeks call Itkidus, and the other wanders around the house. Now, they have an idea who say that the weasel conceives in its mouth and gives birth through its ear. Okay, he lost me. Now, he admits in this that it's an erroneous idea, but that is something that they firmly believed. Medieval bestiaries were based on early Greek and Latin text, and they were lavishly illustrated. The most well-known of these was something called the Ardeen Bestiary. And I know, we're just literally going off tangent, off of tangent, off of tangent. It's just veering into things, but <laughs> this is what happens when I research things. This bestiary was written in the North Midlands of England around 1200 AD and consists of 104 folios. So it has a bunch of different creatures. There's 104 different entries and each one is illustrated. So it's Pokedex. like... Pokedex. Yeah, basically, it's, a, it's the English Pokedex is what it would be. And if you look at the picture of the weasel, which is the 23rd folio, it has this description. The cat, a catcher of mice, the weasel who hunts snakes and gives birth through its ear or mouth. The folio of the weasel gives us one of the earlier insights into an animal, which could have been the ferret, because that's kind of what it shows, as well as it kept alive that weird impression, as said before, which was found in both the Epistle of Barnabas as well as the Metamorphoses, so much earlier, like Greek and Latin texts, that weasels gave birth, like they conceived through the mouth, and then gave birth out the ears. And I keep on saying that, and you're probably wondering, why? Why? Why, what, why would you come to that belief? And like all many weird origin stories that we have, it goes back to the Greeks. Of course. Yes. So, so the Greek story goes that Zeus's wife, Hera, was pretty ticked off that Zeus was, you know... A playboy. Basically, yeah. No, Zeus was an absolute... I can use much stronger language to describe this here, but I'm not going to. Uh, but yeah, he was, needless to say, a playboy. And one of his dalliances with a mortal uh, was found out. And when Hera realized that she was about to give birth, she scurried into this house and she wanted to slow the birth. And this woman's name was... Alcimene, I'm believing that's how I'm pronouncing the name. I'm probably butchering it here. But Hera apparently thought, the goddess Hera, that she could stop or slow this childbirth to make an exceptionally painful process by having her sit cross-legged and then tying her clothes in knots. I guess, like, restricting her 
body or something to make it a painful, uncomfortable so process. So she gave birth through her ear. I, I, no, no. It's what? even weirder for it here. No. So, but this woman's servant called Galanthus foiled the plot by telling Hera that his lady had already given birth. So when Hera found out that she had been deceived, she was so angry with Galanthus that she turned him into a weasel. And then, uh, sorry, Galanthus was a woman. I don't know why I'm saying that Galanthus was a male, because that makes that story even weirder if that is the case. <laughs> I was concerned. But they turned Galanthus into a weasel and then forced her to give birth by laying eggs out of her mouth. Now you're probably, I know you're looking at me so confused because it's like weasels don't lay eggs. What the hell is this talking about? The, the thing with weasels is they didn't just eat mice. They also stole eggs. So like they hunted snakes and different yeah, things like weasels. that. They get, they eat everything. Yeah, they eat everything. And so one of the things that Greeks would oftentimes see is weasels running around with, with eggs egg. in their mouth. So there was this idea that they laid, the laid egg. eggs and they gestated in their mouth and then they would swallow the egg and give birth out the ear. Why the ear? I mean, if you swallow, you know what? Let's I, continue. I, Let's continue. I'm not sure, but it's not just a matter of giving birth. There was all these ancient ideas about weasels, like the fact that they could bring their children back to life if they died. I'm, I'm, no, I'm not kidding about that. <laughs> genuinely, genuinely, some say, as said, that they would conceive through the ear and give, or sorry, conceive through the mouth and give birth out the ear, but that they are also skilled at healing so that if by chance their young are killed and their parents succeed in finding them quickly enough, they can bring them back to life by putting them in their mouth. Explain. I don't know how I can explain that further. That was just a belief that if they found their children, they're capable of eating them and giving birth to them again. <laughs> And that was that was one of the Greeks' understanding of biology. Amazing. That was a thing. Okay, but this isn't just like that's just the whole thing based off the Greeks. There's a there's a whole host of other stories in medieval bestiaries based off weasels. So remember how I talked about that Aberdeen like folio, like uh, that bestiary collection? Yes. Well, according to it, there's a, a another creature, apparently, that exists that it's described as the basilisk which could have been one of two things it was either a massive snake with a like a cobra hood except it's made of feathers so it's like crested and that kind of thing no, thank you. think of like what we saw in um if you ever saw the second harry potter movie I did not like watch that harry potter. that's the idea of that basilisk the <laughs> okay but it is for those of you who that are listening that's that's what it was that's the initial idea that a lot of people have of a basilisk the other idea was that it was a gigantic rooster, but instead of a rooster's tail, it had a giant snake on the end of it. And that's where that comes from. Either one involves a snake, but that was the idea. And its Latin name was Regulus, and it's considered the king of serpents because its Greek name, Basilis, means little king. So the basilisk, the basilisk, that's where that actually comes from. Its odor was said to kill snakes, it could breathe fire that it would use to kill birds, and its glance was potent enough to actually kill a man. And it could also apparently kill creatures by hissing at them. So that it was like this crazy combination. And basilisks were hatched from a rooster's egg? It doesn't make really much sense, but that's the gist of it. 
But but here's the part that kills me. According to the bestiary, the only creature that could actually take on a basilisk was a, was a weasel. And weasels would regularly attack a basilisk if they encountered them and eat their eggs. Like that that was the purpose. Now, of course, this is a fantasy creature, but that that's what they had. In fact, they were so adamant about this fact that if you look at the 66th picture, the 66th folio, which is the basilisk, the image specifically depicts a weasel jumping on, attacking, and, like, fighting the basilisk. So someone saw a weasel kill a snake and said, hey, let's run with it. I, d I don't even know. That's going to probably require even more research to figure that one out, but that is, <laughs> that's where that thing comes from. So we, we've covered all the stuff here, you know, medieval history, or at least part of the ancient beginnings of it. Ferrets over time were becoming more and more common. They were really plentiful in where they were being domesticated in like Spain, Italy, Greece, that kind of place. But they weren't as common up in more of the northern countries. So they were exported there due to their desirable hunting traits. So by the 1200s, ferrets had spread to Germany and then from there to England. And, and it's actually funny. So if the ferrets in ancient times were the hunting tool of the common man, that was not the case for the English at all. So in England, church officials held ferrets because they had a really high price and you were not allowed to own a ferret unless you had an annual income of 40 shillings, which... Is that a lot? At the, if you take inflation, if you look for the, like, the amount, that's about $300. A year. Which, yeah. Which, I mean, for a peasant in 1200, that, that's a lot. Sure. That's a lot at that time. Like, uh, this is another thing, and we're going to go off into another little, like, historical tangent about this. But people think that a lot of ancient kings, queens, emperors, and just individuals were stupidly rich. Like, the richest man on earth was Mansa Musa, who literally crashed the Egyptian gold market by flooding it with gold that he had produced from his uh like state of mali down in africa but the reality of the situation is is that the wealth that they have relative to what some people do now is ridiculous what constitutes as wealthy a thousand years ago that same wealth transcribed or transcribed uh like if you account for inflation and general worth for what it would buy today is dirt it's nothing in comparison Okay, I've gone off on that tangent for here. So, as we established, only in places that people actually had money could they own ferrets up in the north. In fact, this was a thing that was used by, um, by nobility. So, in the 1660s in England, the household books of Lord William Howard, who lived in uh, Naworth Castle in Cumberland, he actually gives a detailed description about one of his servants, who was a warner. So, that was the term for this job for it. This was a person who had ferrets, and he was decked out with things like a carrying bag. He had yarn that he would use to mend his nets. He had traps. Uh, he had a ferret line, which a ferret line was literally like a, a cord that you would tie to a ferret. A that leash. kind of thing. Yeah, basically it was a leash. Yeah. And an implement for digging them out. Because sometimes when the ferrets bur burrowed down into the holes, they didn't really want to leave. So you had to, you know, dig them out of the hole that you had just thrown them into. And that was the thing. And and that shows that this guy, he specifically had his own house. And his own house had a room that all the ferrets lived in. 
then that showed just how wealthy he was. Because imagine you own this really small house, right? And the house basically has two rooms. One room is occupied by you, and it's like a studio apartment. And then in the other room is just a ton of ferrets. That actually sounds so pleasant. It's better than having a room where I live and then your room, you know? You've seen what, if, if you own a cat, if you live in an apartment and you've seen what a cat is like in an apartment, I want you to imagine that, except the cat is on cocaine and there's like 30 of them. The 5 a.m., like, you know, when they start dashing around the house? Oh, no. <laughs> yes. So that's the thing. But it wasn't just ferrets that they had these kind of rules for, for ownership and that sort of thing. So that 40 shillings law, that was for to own a dog to hunt. Uh, ferrets. You couldn't, like, own the nets or material that you would need to actually hunt the stuff. Or other engines that you'd use to destroy, like, or to, uh, to capture deer. It was basically a thing to stop people from poaching, which is a whole other series of laws entirely that would have to be tackled another time. But that's the gist of that. So in addition to hunting, because we basically only talked about hunting and that's it, it that fur, uh, ferrets were also used for fur production, though this was a lot less popular until uh, this was less popular until like the 20th century and it didn't really last very long. It died out fairly quickly. And in the 18th century, they were also used by ship's captains, as we talked about on ships, to, well, go after rodents because ferrets are super slinky little cats like they can fit into all these nooks and crevices and crannies that cats simply can't reach not to mention they're super lively so unlike a cat which is going to basically ignore you all day most of the time ferrets were wild like you could play with them they would cuddle they would jump around like if you've seen videos on tiktok like if you watch any of our stuff i see a lot of ferret videos because i like them Oh. And, and you just see they're like little crack addicts running through tunnels. And there's ones of like a ferret that is uh, it's going down the stairs, chasing a ball that some that this guy released at the top of the stairs. And then you see him at the top. He dumps a tub, and a hundred more balls fall down. And the ferret is just chasing this ball in slow motion down the stairs. And then the balls start bouncing past it, and it realizes, and it looks around. And it looks, sees all the balls, and it's just like sensation overload as it just spazzes out on the stairs doing a backflip and falling down the stairs and that is basically describes the ferret's personality to a t if you've seen what i've talked uh, what i'm talking about then you know but it wasn't just that ferrets were used for say general ownership of people like in the example in the 1860s new zealand imported game animals like the rabbit and this, oh, oh God. I remember this story. Yeah, I talked about it with Australia, but this is a thing that, something that Europeans did when they colonized different parts of the world is that they brought in a bunch of different creatures to different places that had no right being there. And this is just a series of domino effects and really dumb shit that occurred. So by the 1870s, Rabbits were decimating the landscape because they had no natural predators. Like there was no predators in New Zealand that would eat rabbits. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. 
but they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters, to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws, I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. So what they did is they started releasing ferrets. In 1879, five ferrets were released to control the rabbit population. And over time, they would, you know, they'd release more, they would breed, and they released thousands of these ferrets going from the period of like 1882 all the way to 1886. They had stoats, weasels, basically anything along those lines. And these ferrets, quote unquote, were able to live under wild conditions. They formed colonies in New Zealand, which, and here we go, resulted in not only the eradication of rabbits, but contributed to a disastrous decline in native birds. You see, ferrets were able to live successfully in the wild because the climate of New Zealand is ideal, and ferrets, just like the rabbits, they had no natural predators that were there that would go after them. So they could breed essentially uncontrolled and there was an endless food supply because they don't just eat rabbits. They eat birds, rodents, all kinds of things. And many of New Zealand's birds are flightless. They literally cannot fly. So this caused, so at the risk of their lives to these ground dwelling predators, like it, it was, it was huge. The ferret just ripped through these populations of flightless birds driving a number of them to extinction and others into severe endangered status. I mean, ferrets are not the only factor in the loss of the species. species. Human settlements and all other kinds of things are important, but that was a huge thing to consider. The current estimates is that the number of feral ferrets on the islands (laughs) is about a million. Wow. Out of just a few thousand that they had released. Because again, no natural predators. Invasive species. Correct. Now, they did the same thing in Australia because I covered this before about what happened when they released rabbits into Australia. And rabbits to this day are still a huge problem in Australia. So they brought in ferrets there to do the exact same thing. But Australia's climate is not as welcoming to ferrets while simultaneously they have a lot more predators. So like they have, you know, foxes, uh, feral cats, dingoes. Spiders the size of human beings. Pretty much. So this was a point where it didn't really affect them to the same level. Ferrets were actually a useful tool there, and there's still some small colonies, but they couldn't really establish big, wild, successful ones. There would just be isolated incidents of them. And That's good. You don't want big, successful, <laughs> invasive species, babe. So th- that's the general history of ferrets. Now, what I'm going to get into is the jobs. We've kind of talked about the jobs for general things. So, as I said, they were used for hunting, pest control, that kind of thing. In barns, granaries, all different kinds of things in Europe, American ships, etc. As an example of this, the Massachusetts Colonial Navy 
which was organized on December 29th, 1975, uh, 1975, 1775, and was reactivated in 1967, and also again in 1986, it proclaimed the ferret as its official mascot. And I actually have an excerpt for here that I'm going to read verbatim, because this is this is the ceremonial speech that shows the importance of ferrets on these ships. Now in the days of wooden men-of-wars, there was quite often an uninvited population of rodents aboard the ship. Dogs were completely unsuccessful mousers, and besides that, their barking kept both captain and crew awake. Cats are infinitely preferred over dogs, but they were unable to chase mice into the many narrow holes and passageways aboard the ship. So more mice escaped than were caught. But there was one animal the rats and mice could never escape from, no matter where they tried to hide, no matter how small a hole they ran into. They were doomed. This animal is one of man's best friends and totally fearless. They had a great demand aboard ships of the Colonial Navy, and fortunate indeed were the crews that had a ferret for a mascot and a friend. Which, I mean, that's a really dramatic speech to give regarding a ferret. They were passionate. It was a very useful thing to have, admittedly. Now, it it wasn't just that they were used on ships. So, like, with... uh, over time, with the development of chemical repellents and other means of reducing pests, we didn't really need ferrets anymore, but their specific body type, their speed, and their love for small, tight spaces gave them a lot of other jobs. Like, so I'll give you this as an example. This is one of the things that uh, those chemicals replace. You had a job in America, like in the uh, mid-1800s, and it was called a ferretmeister. And this job was in England and Germany and all other kinds of places. So you basically had a guy who would go around with ferrets. That was his thing. He bred and kept ferrets. And you would pay him a fee, and he would travel out to your farm or your land, and he would throw his ferrets down into the hole. Like, the exact same thing that they would do in ferreting, where it was, you know, a hunting practice. Except in this case, it was literal pest control. Like, he was a ferret terminator. So it was just a—it was a ferret mercenary— who went around with his pet ferrets to farms that would hire him, and, you know, he would throw his ferrets down holes. He was an exterminator before exterminators were exterminators. Exactly. And it's, amazingly enough, there are still practices like that in the world. For example, China does the same thing with ducks, and that's a practice that has been going on for centuries, millennia even. So basically what you'd have is you'd have this guy that would have thousands of ducks, right? And farmers would pay him a fee, and what he would do is he would herd all of his ducks like sheep to the rice paddy fields and then release the ducks. The ducks don't care about, you know, anything to do with the rice. They don't eat any of it here. They don't harm the plants. They don't do anything. But all of the mites, bugs, locusts, pests, and other things that are on them, they would eat. So you, there's actually videos that they have of this practice in modern day where they release a bunch of ducks and just thousands of them tens of thousands like in a swarm moving across through a field and you can see it's like this dark muddy murky field and then as the ducks pass it's just clean because they're wiping away all of the pests in it how do you feel about if your podcast really takes off my future career change as random animal exterminator like i can have just an army of cats on my own duck Gabby, I'm not going to lie. When you use the term random animal exterminator, no. you make it sound like you're a serial killer, but for animals. It's 
know what I meant. That's what it sounds like. Okay, an exterminator that uses animals. God. So I talked about the ferret on ships, right? I, I, I've talked about all these different things. I know I keep on going off on tangents, but the ferret's uh, anatomy and willingness to run through dark tunnels made them an ideal, like, creature or entity for transporting cables through long pipes. So oilmen in the North Sea, telephone companies, camera crews, and people working on airline jets use ferrets for the purpose of running wires. So what they would do is the ferret would wear a harness um, where you'd have this long, thin nylon line that's attached to it. The nylon line is then connected to a cable that needs to be pulled through the, like, through the conduit. And the ferrets were used in, for example, in London to run television and sound cables for the wedding of the Prince of Wales and Lady Diana at Buckingham Palace. So at the Millennium New Year Eve's party in Greenwich, London, Greenwich. Greenwich. Greenwich? 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 Yeah, I do that every time. Greenwich. In Greenwich, London, ferrets were also used to run these cables for the televised coverage. Now, over time, as machinery developed and they had specific devices used for this specific tool, you didn't really need ferrets as a transporter, but there's still this hilarious idea of like, hmm, Billy, we have to get this cord through this pipe here. Otherwise, how are we going to connect the phone line? I know, by Jove, we'll just tie it to a ferret and throw it in the pipe. And it works. It actually worked. And I mean, speaking of England, I'm not exactly sure that you'd call this a job, but for centuries, there has been this rather odd, but fun activity. I, I don't, would it be fun? I don't know. You, you be the judge of this. So only the bravest and most stubborn men would play this in English pub. And it is, it's a very simple game. And what you would need is a ferret and a few strings. Okay. So what you would do is you would get a guy, like this is the competitor, and you would tie the strings to the end of his pants, right? Like you'd basically create like little tourniquets like at his pants. So they would cut it off. So you, you block off escape through uh, to the feet. And what you would then do is you would release a ferret or a number of ferrets down his pants. And then you would tie off the waist so they can't also claw out of there. And this was a game that people played for literally centuries. Currently, currently, the record holder is a man from Yorkshire who had parrots or parrots who had ferrets in his pants for five hours. Gabby, this man had ferrets in his pants for five hours. Wow. Five hours. Yes. He has ferrets in his pants. It's been years on ferrets. Oh my god, no, we're not calling that. Ferrets were also used for a bunch of other things, like, for example, biomedical research. One of their first uses, actually, was to dis like to study how human influenza virus works and what they were susceptible to, because ferrets actually can catch influenza. Like, they can catch the same virus that humans would. So they would breed a bunch of these ferrets and use them to test the viruses on for the purpose of seeing, you know, what would happen, treatments, etc. Like that, that's some of the earliest testing that would be used for it. That's kind of sad. I mean, it is. They were used for things from, you know, virology, toxicology, pharmacology, reproductive studies, etc. There's a ton of different things that they would use. And this, the byproducts of what they would, you know, study 
led to huge growth for human medicine development. Now, I know it's kind of sad when we look at it, and it's not nearly as common for what has happened, what happens today, but it still does occur. The other thing is that it's this 50-50 split. Well, I don't exactly know the exact percentage. We still use animal models today to deal with disease because the reason why HCV, hepatitis C, doesn't actually have like a vaccine is because we don't have an animal model for it. We can't make an animal. We don't have an animal that is susceptible to the like disease. Really? And is affordable to breed and research with. So we just can't make a vaccine. Huh. That makes sense for it here. Interesting. Well, the interesting thing to note from this here is that those same breeding facilities that breed tons of ferrets for the purpose of the pharmaceutical researchers, those also are the same ferrets that would go to pet stores. Really? <clears throat> oh, man. There's a sneeze. You gotta edit that out. <laughs> no, it stays in. Everything does. <laughs> this is rough, all right? It is pure. It is untainted. What you hear on here is the purest of them all, and that is what we are doing. And we've said that here, we've talked about, you know, hunting, we've talked about pest control, we've talked about running cables, but by far, nowadays, the most common use for ferrets is simply as a companion. They're small, they're easy to care for, they're really entertaining, and they have crazy personalities. So, you, so ferret owners have these shows where their pets just compete in areas for, like, color, best dress, like, yeah, they have little outfits, tuxedos, hats, all different kinds of things yawning contests because if you've ever seen this ferrets have like really i think it goes from when they would eat eggs they have really big jaws like unhinged jaws almost and so they have yawn contests to see which ferret can yawn the biggest that's amazing <laughs> yeah i know so they have a really long history of serving with humans oh and the other thing they do races and things like that so they would put a bunch of pipes and they would release ferrets into it, and the fastest ferret wins. And that's just the gist of it. I think the weirdest thing I've learned tonight is that I didn't think it was weird that he had ferrets in his pants for five hours. That wasn't strange to me. No, I mean, to be honest... That wasn't the weirdest thing you covered. Yeah, it's humanity. There are some pretty weird ones. And on that note, before we end, this is a section that I'm going to start doing here at the very end, I think. Um, it's not really related to anything else, and I don't know how I would fit this in here. I, I say that, but I'm the, I literally just go off on tangents for all of it. So we're going to do a little section here at the end that is just fun facts for whatever is kind of related to the topic for it here. So fun fact, if you didn't know, a group of ferrets is called a business. <laughs> so in the same way as a flock of, you know, like you got crows, which are murders... Murder. It's a murder of crows. A group of ferrets is called a business. And there's got to be some serious irony with the fact that, you know, the ferret literally meaning smelly thief weasel. And a group of them is called a business. <laughs> like, there's some serious irony when it comes to that. Like dogs, ferrets have long canine teeth. But like cats, domesticated ferrets can be litter box trained. Wow. So they, you actually... Uh, Early stages, you'll have messes, and that's a thing that's going to happen. Yeah. But they can be litter box trained, and in addition to that, that smell that they have can be greatly reduced by both bathing and also diet. Depending on the diet of what you feed them, there's specific diets so that they don't actually really smell. They just more have a light musky scent rather than stinking. And the name ferret comes from the Latin word furitus, 
which literally means little thief. And this name likely comes from the fact that ferrets have this habit of just stealing small items. A ferret is like a combination between a cat and a magpie that just goes around and steals shiny items that interest it and hiding it in different places. Wow. And with that, that is the end. I've gone on for quite a while. On so many tangents. And I would like to call this podcast episode a look into Stekui's brain. A.K.A. what I have to listen to every single day. I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And, you know, leave us a review. The usual. Come over, check us out on Patreon. We're going to be redoing the tiers so that you guys get way more perks for actually being a patron. And thank you so much. Once again, I thank you all my hosts, and I'll see you there on the next time. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? You get us, Queen's Podcast. And here at Queen's, we are spilling the tea on all kinds of women from history. From New Orleans voodoo queen, Marie Laveau, to Marie Antoinette, and everything in between. Each queen is paired with a cocktail recipe that will totally get you in the mood to hear the fun, dramatic, and juicy stories of fascinating women from history. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers! Cheers!